Good morning, church. Good morning. Uh, my name is Michael. I'm a covenant partner here at First Press. And this morning I have the privilege of reading sacred scripture. Luke, the evangelist, wanted to give the world an orderly account of the life of Jesus. He said that he wanted us to have certainty in the things we believe because he wanted us to know that we can trust the good news of salvation. But most importantly, he wanted us to know who Jesus really is so that we would put our trust in him. In our passage today, we read the story of John the Baptist introducing Jesus, the Son of God, to the world. Uh, this morning's scripture reading will be from Luke chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 6, and then 15 through 22. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Verse 15, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I believe, excuse me, I baptized you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice from heaven came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Michael. Can we give Michael a hand for getting through that first paragraph full of names? You know, you know, I have read that passage hundreds of times. I've read it in church dozens of times before preaching. You know the name that always trips me up after reading all those others, the one that always gets me? Abilene. It's weird. I mean, it's, it's, it's like the one we know is the one that grabs us. It is so good to see everybody this morning. Before we jump into the, service, into the sermon this morning, I just want to take a moment to celebrate and to just thank you all for a couple of things. If you've got your bulletin, take that in hand with you this morning. There's something I want to bring to your attention. Look on the back page. Look on the very back page, and you're going to see a table. And that table is really important 
You see that it's got our financial statistics for the end of the year. I want you to look at those, I want you to look at those numbers in that, uh, in that top table. And I want you to look in, uh, I, and then I want you to look at the, uh, the numbers at the bottom table. And I want you to see that we are, that we finished 2022, $808,521,000 over budget. That is a surplus. If you wanna know how we got there, I've been told by my friends who were accounting majors, those parentheses mean that that was actually not an expense. That was actually a, that was actually like a plus there. So that's cool. So I look at this and I think of our overall budget and I know that like doing the math in my head, that is X percent of our budget and that that is impressive. God is a God of abundance and we have something to celebrate. And that's, you know, that's something we're going to share that's not something that's going to go directly to our operating expenses or anything like that. That's something that, that, is, that is plus from your hearts in faithfulness to God. And so that's going to be going to, to our mission partners. That's going to be going to things right here in San Antonio. That's going to be going to, yes, I mean, we're going to, you know, we're going to be prudent and, and take care of some things that we have to take care of financially. But, but the lion's share of that is going to be used for, what, for God's purposes above and beyond what we were prepared to celebrate for this year. And so, so I just want to thank you all. And we want to thank today our God of abundance, who is, who is so generous with us and allows us to be so generous with his work. So thank you all very, very much. Can we turn to the Lord in prayer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being the God of abundance. But we know that even though this, this, this moment of financial recognition is important, the abundance you give us spiritually, the abundance of grace you give us is so much greater than the abundance of the money or the resources that we have. But Lord, we do thank you for all of it. And now, Lord, as we turn to your word, I just pray that you would help us to understand that this is your word. It is true, every word of it, and it is given in love to us. And so... Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Yeah, I think one of the biggest topics, one of the biggest stories in the news is the topic of trust. Think about it, for the last several years, for the last several months in particular, Twitter has been bought and now because of that, Files have been released that show a, I mean, a really sad collusion between, between certain parties and political biases and things like that, the misreporting of facts and, and deplatforming of people. Or, you know, think about the financial world. We just recently experienced the, the collapse of FTX and, and people lost billions of dollars in the cryptocurrency market all because they, they trusted the wrong person. Or think about the investigations of fraud taking place all over Washington, D.C. about the, the mishandling of documents and top secret material and all of that kind of thing. Think about the lack of trust we have right now because of, of misinformation or mistakes that were made during the whole COVID pandemic. Just a real eroding of trust when it comes to things like our, our scientific institutions and even science itself. All of these things have paid a price and trust has really been a big issue I mean, whether it's personal, interpersonal, 
or whether it is institutional. Every day we, we trust people and we trust, we trust institutions and based on what they tell us, we make decisions and we, we shape our lives around these things. And, and right now, we're in a situation where as a culture, we're asking ourselves, you know, are, are the people on TV, are they journalists or are they propagandists? People in social media, we, we look at, our, at our, our people in our financial institutions and we wonder, are these, are these fraudsters or are they actually you know, responsible, faithful fiduciaries? We look at our politicians and wonder, are these public servants? Are they manipulators? You know, what, what can we trust? Who can we trust these days? You know, actually, your money tells you who you should trust. It says on every bill, what does it say? In God we trust. Maybe, and this is the only time I'm ever going to say this, maybe this time we should trust our money. <laughs> but sadly, we don't even trust God. You know, last week, Mitchell and I brought to light the study by the Gallup organization that showed that fewer and fewer people trust the Bible as a source of truth. And unfortunately, that's not just true about the Bible in general. It's also the case with Jesus in particular. A recent study by Ligonier Ministries revealed that 43% of U.S. evangelicals, that's Christians, believe less than, that 43%, only 43% believe that Jesus was just a great teacher, but not, underline, not the Son of God. That's Christians who think that Jesus was just a great teacher, but not the son of God. That means 43%, two out of five Christians don't believe what the Bible says about Jesus. That's gone up from 20% since just, get this, 2019. The number of professed Christians who say that they do not believe that Jesus is the son of God has doubled in three years. And that's Christians. That doesn't even include everybody else. And so what that means is that the overwhelming majority of people you and I know are not betting they're now and they're forever on Jesus. They are betting they're now and forever on something else, on someone else. So if we don't trust the Bible and if we don't trust Jesus, who do we trust? Twitter? Financial institutions, our political parties, our science institutions, who do we trust? Do you trust you know, the guys in the locker room or the ladies at the meeting? Who are you trusting? Who is influencing the decisions you make? And if, and if these people, if we don't trust that Jesus is the son of God, then that means that we are trusting something else. And if less, then half of the U.S. Uh, Christians in the U.S. believe that Jesus is not the Son of God who can make a difference in their lives, not only now but forever, then they're betting their lives, betting their now and forever on something else, on something less. But on what? On whom? Last week we talked about the certainty or confidence that we have in scriptures as the grounding for how we live and what we believe. The Bible 
is the source that we trust for rightly understanding the truth about the world, for understanding who God is, and really for understanding who we are. So that was last week about the Bible. This week it gets personal. Meaning, this week we're going to talk about whom do you trust when it comes to the most important questions and decisions of your life. Whom are you going to trust? Luke set out to write what he called an orderly account of the origins and ministry of Jesus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. And he wrote his book because he wanted us to know that we can have confidence in who Jesus really is, so that knowing who Jesus really is and where he came from, we will believe in him and bet our lives on him. Now, the story of John the Baptist and the story of Jesus is about knowing who Jesus is, and it's about knowing who you can really trust, who can, you can really bet your life on. And so it's about betting your life on the right person. Now, after telling us about Jesus' birth and his beginnings, Luke introduces us to Jesus' adult ministry through the story of John the Baptist. Now, earlier in Luke, we read that John the Baptist was a miracle baby. He was born to an aged father and mother who, had, who was long thought to be barren. He was the cousin of Jesus, but he grew up, and we learned that he became the family's different child. You've got one of those, don't you? Oh yeah, John's a little bit different from the rest of the family. At some point in his life, John gave up the ordinary routine of day-to-day life in the village and traded it for the life of a desert aesthetic. But then Matthew says that he began to wear clothes made of camel hair and a leather belt around his waist, and he ate wild locusts and honey. Now, he was a powerful preacher with the gift of prophecy, and even though his sermons were very in-your-face, the rich and the powerful, the pious and the plain, they all came out from Jerusalem. They all came out into the desert to hear what John had to say. His words were so full of the truth of God that they gripped the hearts of the people and convicted them so deeply that they would come all the way out from Jerusalem, and that's a long way, to confess their sins and to be baptized by him in the Jordan River. And that's no small hike. But Luke tells us that he was not just an eccentric desert preacher. God had a mission for this special member of the family. Luke says that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So that says that he was a prophet. And John's special mission was to prepare the way of the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So John's mission was to prepare the people of Israel for the coming of the Messiah by calling them to repentance and forgiveness. Why? Because God wants us to be prepared for the coming of his son. Now you know how sometimes when... Uh, maybe sometimes you'll go for a while and you don't notice that you've got a mess in your house until you have guests come over. 
you know, it kind of just starts and it builds up a little by little, but then someone comes to visit with fresh eyes and suddenly you can see the mess that you didn't see before. I'm, I, you know, I'm very blessed. We're very blessed to have my, my in-laws here this weekend staying with us. Um, and, you know, they got here on Friday. And I'll tell you that, you know, about maybe Monday or so, we started to look around and say, you know what? We need to clean this place up. We went to Israel a couple of months ago, and you know that stuff was still kind of out. And Bo was home for for Christmas break, and his stuff was out, and Elle's stuff was out, and my stuff was out. And it, it was just—I mean, it, just, it, but, yeah, it didn't all happen at once. Just little by little, Christmas stuff, Thanksgiving stuff—I mean, all the stuff. <laughs> so we had to spend some time cleaning up the house, and by we, I mean Morgan. <laughs> Sorry, sweetie, about that. I was. I was here all weekend doing church stuff. Um, (laughs) But John is like that good friend who comes over before you have house guests and he says, you know what? You got a mess to clean up here. You have to get cleaned up before your mother comes. Except John was saying, this place is a wreck. Your lives are a wreck. The king is coming and you've got to clean up. He's not just the herald who announces the king's coming. He is the, advi- the Messiah's advance man to make sure that things are ready. But John spoke with so much prophetic power and authority that people began to get confused. They started thinking, maybe this, maybe John is the guy. Maybe he's the Messiah that we've been waiting for. Maybe he's the one. But then John quickly said, I'm not the one. But someone coming after me is coming. But, but, but someone who is coming after me, he is the one. Don't bet your life on me. Bet your life on the one who's coming after me. And so his first message is that the Messiah is coming. He said, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Even though John had these people in the palm of his hand and he could have exploited them six ways to Sunday, he said, this isn't about me. It's about him. He is able to do for you what I could never do. I am not even worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. And then in another place, he even says, he must increase and I must decrease. As he shows up, guess what? I need to fade away. He'll get bigger and I'll get smaller. And I will become a part of his story. You see what a reversal that is for most of us? Most of the time, we want to make Jesus a part of our story. John is saying, no, 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 no. We become part of his story. So we've got to right-size the coming of the Messiah. But he is coming. And John says, here's what he's coming to do. He is coming to cleanse. He's coming to clean us up. Now, in the time of John... The Jews took cleanliness very seriously and were obsessed with washing. 
and ritual bathing and washing their hands. The washing was, was about physical health on the one hand, like washing your hands before you eat, but it was also about respect. It was like showering or cleaning up or putting on your best before meeting someone special. I was talking to somebody this weekend who was talking about a girl that he'd met, and he said, said I don't know when you're going to call, but I'll tell you this. When you call, I'll pick up the phone, and I'll make sure I take a shower before I meet you. You know, when we, when we want to meet somebody, we want to make a good impression, we do what? We clean up, put on our best, comb your hair, all that kind of stuff. Well, this was not just about physical cleanliness. This is about spiritual cleanliness and cleaning up before interacting with God as a matter of reverence, as a matter of respect. Cleaning up was a matter of spiritual health as well as showing respect for God. And so John said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's saying there's only so much that we can do to clean ourselves. There's some things that we just can't get rid of on our own. But he, the Messiah, he's going to do something supernatural in your life. He's going to take away all of that stuff that just clings to you, that you just can't seem to scrub off or get rid of, all that stuff we can't remove by ourselves, even the stuff that we've gotten used to or the stuff that we've become nose blind to. You know what I'm talking about. We don't even notice it anymore. It's become habit. It's a sad thing when sin just becomes a habit. But when the Messiah comes, he's going to come and he's going to clean us. And he's going to clean the world in ways that it has never been cleaned before. Now, have you ever noticed that after you've been really dirty and after you've been grimy for a long time and when you, that, that when you finally get clean, you feel like a new person, just at least for a while? Here's what John also wants us to know. The cleaning that the Messiah gives is going to wash more than your body. He's going to wash away the dirt that we can see, but he's also going to treat the sickness and the hurt and the brokenness that we cannot see. He's going to wash your soul with his spirit and his fire, and he's going to purge and burn away your sin. But in the process, he's going to make you healthy. He's going to set you free and light a fire of passion in you that will last forever, not just a little while. John says that the Messiah is coming to cleanse. But then he also says something else. He says he's coming to convict. John declared his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You know, all week, I kept trying to find a word other than convict that doesn't sound so harsh, that doesn't sound so fire and brimstony, that also begins with a C. <laughs> but I couldn't do it. 
I don't want people to be scared. I don't want people to feel condemned or overwhelmed. But when it comes down to it, I can't get past this word. And I have to tell the truth. And the truth that John declared is that Jesus is not just the humble carpenter. He's not just the gentle healer and teacher. He is the Messiah. He is the final judge of the living and the dead. He is the sovereign over our eternity. And we all stand before him. And we better take him seriously. And he came to expose our sin, the selfishness, the cruelty, the indifference and the jealousy that we do to ourselves and that we use to hurt one another every day. He came to expose our disrespect for God and for his creation, including the way we neglect our children and our own bodies. He came to expose the rebellion in our hearts and the brokenness in our minds and to say, this is not of God. Jesus is God, the Son of God, the Messiah, and he is the judge of the living and the dead. And he came to execute judgment on our sin. And as I said, we better take him seriously. Because as another John, John the disciple, would one day write, if we say that we are without sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But he didn't do it to condemn us. He didn't come to convict us to condemn us. He did it to save us. Why? Because he loves us. In a world of lies and manipulation and flattery, where people tell you exactly what you want to hear because they can use it to get something from you, he is the only one who levels with us and tells us that we're lost, that we're sick, that we're broken, that we're off track. He's the doctor who says, you know what? I love you, but you've really got a problem here. And I'm telling you the bad news because I love you and I want, you, I want to help you. Jesus didn't come to convict us. He came to save us. And so, and so while Jesus is the Messiah, while he is the Savior, he is, he is also the judge. And John is giving us a wake-up call to take him seriously. He came to expose all that stuff, all that mess, and to convict us. And the reason is this, because he wants us, he, he tells us what we don't want to hear so that we will say the hardest thing that we can ever say, which is, I can't do this on my own. I can't do this by myself. I need you. We need you, Jesus. And so he comes to convict us. And then, after all that buildup, after baptizing people for months in the desert, then it happened. He came. While John was baptizing people in the river, Jesus showed up. Now Luke was actually very frugal in his details and his description of this event. So I want to take a look at Matthew's gospel for a moment. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you 
and yet you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. At first, John, claiming that he was unworthy, refused to baptize Jesus. But then Jesus said, no, this is necessary. It is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Why was it necessary for the sinless son of God to be baptized for the repentance of sins? Wasn't he blameless? The book of Hebrews says that he was like us in every way, yet had no sin. He had no guilt. He had nothing to be ashamed of. He'd, he'd broken no relationships. He'd, he'd betrayed no one. Why did he have to be baptized? Why would he have to wash and be clean? Jesus was baptized because Jesus understood that repentance is not just about forgiveness for our sins. It's not just about getting rid of our guilt or about giving up the vices and the lusts that we seem so desperately to crave. Repentance is so much better than that. Repentance, the word repentance, literally means to change one's heart or to turn around, to change one's ways and go in a different direction. And he understood this, that repentance is not only about turning away from sin, it's about turning toward God. It's about turning toward the Father. It's about taking God seriously, betting our lives on Him, and putting Him in control of the direction of our lives. You know, sadly, most people have a half-baked understanding of repentance. When most people hear the word repent, they think that repentance simply means to regret the bad things that you've done, to punish yourself, to make amends, or to fix whatever you broke so you won't end up in hell. But the best part of repentance is that by turning your back on sin, you turn toward the face of God. Repentance is about letting it all go to satisfy our hunger and our thirst with the glory of God. And Jesus knew well, beyond all doubt, that nothing will ever satisfy us. Nothing will ever lift us or give us more joy than giving ourselves and humbling ourselves before God. You see, Jesus wasn't baptized because he needed it. Jesus was baptized because he wanted it. Because there was nothing more precious than him to be in a right relationship with God. That's what righteousness means. And so he was totally surrendered. He was totally sold out to his father's will. Remember when he said, not my will, but thy will be done. And then Luke tells us that when Jesus was baptized, he was confirmed by heaven itself. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus God the Son also had been baptized and was praying. The heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice, the voice of God the Father, came from heaven. Here we have visual confirmation, the dove descending on him and verbal confirmation that Jesus is the Son of God. 
Here we see all the members of the Trinity, the Holy Trinity together. Jesus, God the Son, the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, and the voice, the voice of God the Father declaring that this is my Son. Here is the Christ, the one who was and is and is to come, Emmanuel, God with us. And I love this. Luke says that the heavens were opened to him. And God said, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. All of a sudden, God pulled back the curtain between heaven and earth, and Jesus could see the shining face of his father. He was now looking into the bright eyes that see eternity and into the glorious countenance of pure love. And then God said, this is my son. Here is my boy. I'm so proud of him. He is special like no other. He is going to do glorious and powerful things. He is going to save the world. You know, in the Christmas story, Luke declared Jesus' biological kinship with the Father as the Son of God, but now Luke wants to declare Jesus' spiritual kinship with the Father. He wants to show us that more important than the fact that Jesus was uniquely born is the fact that he was eternally claimed by God, by the Father. And here's why the story is so important to us. In this story, we not only learn a few things about the identity of Jesus as the Son of God, we also learn something about our identity as children of God. We know that Jesus was the Son of God, but what does that mean for us? As followers of Jesus Christ, it means that we're not only cleansed by God, forgiven of our sins, it means that we are claimed by God. You know, this really got me while we were in Israel standing on the banks of the Jordan River. Doesn't it look like the Guadalupe? <laughs> I promise, this is the Jordan River. I didn't just drive out to, you know, <laughs> Kerrville or something like that. When Jesus came out of the waters of baptism, God said, this is my beloved son, and with him I am well pleased. And as I was watching dozens of people going down into the water to be baptized, it hit me anew. God did not just claim Jesus. In Jesus Christ, he claimed us. And I'm here to, pro to proclaim today that whether you were baptized as a child or as a youth or as an adult, when you were baptized, God claimed you too. He claimed everyone who is in Christ Jesus as his own child. The Apostle Paul says in the letter to the Galatians, 
When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of the son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son or a daughter. And if a son or a daughter, then also an heir through God. That means that we're not just broken penitents kneeling before a judge, but you are a child embraced by your father. We are adopted by God. He has claimed us as his own children. We are made heirs and real daughters and sons of God. So when Jesus says, you are my son and with you I am well pleased, he is saying that to every person who is in Jesus Christ. That is your new and that is your true identity. Being a child of God begins when we understand that the Son of God did not come just to save the world. He came to save you. He came to save me. This is personal. Before you ever heard about him, before you were even born, God the Father claimed you as his son in Jesus Christ. He claimed you. He knew your name. He gave you your parents. He knew where you would be born. You were born as a child of destiny. And because of Jesus Christ, God the Father has said, this is my beloved son, Will. And with him, I am well pleased. This is my beloved daughter, Amy. And with her, I am well pleased. And he has sealed you by his Holy Spirit. But there's something else I want you to hear as well. I know, I know, I know that there are people in this room today who are thinking to themselves, well, that's it. I'll never be a child of God. Because I know that he can't be pleased with me. I know it. I don't, I don't even have to know you. I know that that's what there are a lot of people in your thinking right now. He may be kind of pleased with me, but he's not really pleased with me. There are a lot of people thinking that right now. I mean, you're thinking, sure, that was true for people back then or it's true for other people, but it's not true for people like me. Let's talk about that for a minute. When God claimed you, he knew what kind of life you would live. Oh, yes. He knew everything that you would do, that of which you are proud and that of which you are ashamed. He knew about the times that you have been hurt and broken and the times when you would stand strong. He knew about the times you would be kind and about the times that you would be selfish and cruel. He was well aware of the times that you've forsaken him, blaming him and denying him all at the same time. And he knows 
that every single one of us, when given the option, has preferred to do it our own way rather than his way. But he also remembers those times when you secretly, desperately prayed to him for help. But how could God possibly claim us as his adopted children when we have drifted, I mean, when we have bolted so far away from him? Well, after exposing the sin in the world and in our lives, after convicting us, Jesus, the precious Son of God, did what we could never do for ourselves. He executed the judgment for our sin. After living the life that we could never live, he died the death that we would never endure. We were convicted, but he was given the sentence. He endured both the physical and spiritual death penalty that we deserved for our sin. He gave his life for the sake of convicted sinners. That means that he gave his life for every perverse or cruel or selfish act that you have ever committed and for every offense or abuse that you have ever endured. He gave his life so that we could have the life and the relationship with God the Father that he created us to have. So Jesus baptized us with spirit and fire, but also with his own blood. So now, because of Jesus, God the Father looks at us and says, this is my beloved child, and I'm so proud of her. This is my beloved son, and he is going to do great things. To be a child of God is not simply to believe that God exists or to be a member of the church or to call yourself religious or Christian or even spiritual. To be a child of God means to put all your eggs in his basket. It's to know that the Savior has come, that he came to cleanse us, to take away every stain that mars us and all the clutter that irritates us and sickens us and weighs us down. That he came to convict us of our need and of our sin, not because he wants to condemn us, but because he wanted to expose and reveal the sin in us. He did it because he loves us and he doesn't want us to be satisfied with anything less than the life that God created us to have. And it has been confirmed that he is the son of God by the voice of God and by the Holy Spirit speaking through the testimony and generations and crying out, Abba, Father. And finally, to be a child of God means to know that he has claimed you as his own adopted brothers and sisters, as his own beloved child whom he loves and with whom the father is well pleased. How much of your life have you invested with Jesus? How much of your time, how much of your money, how much of your security, your energy, your happiness? What are you trusting if not him? And whom are you going to trust?
Will you pray with me? Father, there are people in this room today who are convinced that either you're not real or that you don't care or that you can't make a difference in our lives. But Lord, Luke lived. He gave his life to make sure that we would know that you are real, that you do do love us and that you can make a difference now and forever. And Lord, you gave your life to prove that we are not simply a cast-off creation, but that we are your precious children. And Lord, you came to prove that we are not just servants of the King, but sons and daughters of the King. Lord, help us not only to be claimed, feel the claim that you have on us, but to own that claim for ourselves and to cry out with all of our hearts as the Son of God did, Abba, Father, Amen.